The opinions and views shared in this podcast are the opinions and views of the host and the host alone. They are not a reflection of his employer or any other organization that the host is a member of. The host does not speak for anyone, only himself. This is the I Am Pith Podcast. Get ready for contact. All right, so I'm going to start over. My bad. My, my bad, bro. It's that no type problem. of day for both of us. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is your boy Dex with the Iron Pits Podcast. Today with me, I have a very special guest. I have author Adam Coleman, who is the author of Black Victim to Black Victor, and he is also the creator of wrongspeak.net. And I am very happy to have him on. So as you all know, I'm a big Drinking Bros fan and anything they put out. Their host, Dan Holloway, has started his own podcast, The Citizens Podcast. And a couple of weeks ago, I heard Mr. Coleman here on the Citizens Podcast, and his interview absolutely blew me away. And it just really shocked me because, you know, as a black man in this world and in America, as a conservative, and it's it gets a little lonely sometimes. You you don't realize that there are other people out there that kind of think like you in a lot of ways, because especially in the black community, there's so many people that frown down upon that. But I started, I listened to his, uh, his uh, podcast over there, his interview over there. And then I reached out to him and to my surprise, he actually got back with me rather fast. And from there, I told him I was an author and I had a book and we did a sign autograph exchange copy of each other's books. And when I got his book in the mail and I opened it and read the first few pages, I was instantly blown away. The parallels in his opening and the par- to my book are so similar that he as a black man in America has had this same experience as me to a certain degree. But it's also a little bit different because he grew up without a father. Me, I grew up with my father and I had to have him on my show to just get his outlook on this thing and see why he uh, decided to take this journey on this project with this book. So, ladies and gentlemen, with that said, I have with me Mr. Adam Coleman. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right, brother. So if you could just tell the people who you are and where you're from. Yeah. So uh, my name is Adam Coleman. I'm your average American um, who just happened to write a book uh, and, and decided to get up one day and actually have my voice put out there. Um, I started writing the book a few months after the death of George Floyd. Um, and it took me about nine months to completion, self-published it. And um, and just so people understand, I didn't have a public presence. I had a Facebook account that I rarely used. Uh, it was just for friends and family. Wasn't really into social media like that. So I pretty much just kept to myself uh, about my politics, my views, um, and even, and, and I kind of go into it in the book, my my shift in views in politics and just being aware of, of a lot of different things that are happening around me and, and things that were happening around me that I wasn't aware of and people brought it to light to me. Um, so all of that kind of happened uh, before I released the book. Um, and it was just, the book was just a way for me to finally express myself. Um, after George Floyd died, it was like I, I watched uh, my country have a panic attack over over an unfortunate incident with one person. And it, it just, it, you know, extrapolated to this is the plight for most Black men and, and, and this whole narrative um, that I just didn't agree with. Um, and it felt like nobody was speaking for me. Even people who I generally agreed with uh, 
they weren't saying how I wanted to say it, right? They, they, it wasn't my voice, it wasn't my words. Um, and finally, I went into like some free speech forums and just started expressing myself. And I got some encouragement. They say, you should write, you should write more often. And I said, you know what, this, that's what it's gonna be. Um, and just to also say, a couple of years prior, I wanted to write a book, but I had no idea what to write about. Um, I, I wanted it to be something like questioning things, asking questions. Um, so that's why the introduction is called questions. That That's how I wanted to start it. So that's kind of like a reach back to my original concept of a book. Um, but yeah, I, I basically, I just went from uh, no public presence. And, and basically, a year later, um, I'm sitting here on your podcast. You actually want to talk to me about the book. People enjoy the book. Um, you know, I've done television. I've been writing for the New York Post, Newsweek. Um, and yeah, it's just been, it's been crazy. Uh, 50,000 followers on Twitter, got the blue check, wow. you know, all these, all these things that I, I didn't expect. Um, so yeah, it's been an absolute blessing to be honest with you. Well, I'm glad that you did it, man. And when did, so when did you officially publish your book? It was the end of March, uh, 2021. Okay. Yeah. So I published mine. I think it was this, yeah, this year, January. And I, anytime somebody writes a book and I, somebody tells me that they have written a book, I am extremely just intrigued because I learned how difficult of a process it is. A lot of people have books in their minds and a lot mm -hmm. of people have these great ideals, but it usually dies with them. And a lot of people don't usually put pen to paper and actually make it a thing that's tangible. And like you, it took you nine months. It took me seven years. <laughs> so I'm oh, very, wow. I'm very, very impressed with nine months from start to finish, man. That is, brother, you was hustling, man. You was getting it done. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what, to be honest with you, part of it, part of it was because it was during the pandemic. So while I did, my life actually didn't really change that much during the pandemic. I went to work every day. I went into, into the office every day. It's just that, I would say things slowed down. So I would start work at 6 a.m. I get into the office. I knew I had a couple of hours where no one was generally going to bother me. And I would basically write for an hour to an hour and a half. I did that five days a week. Um, so like 90% of my book, or maybe more than that, 95% of the book, I wrote actually at work, funny enough. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, my job, I, I work in IT. So my job is to sit behind the desk all day. So I just took advantage of that opportunity, um, especially early in the morning, starting work at 6 a.m. where no one's bothering me and I could just focus in, in type. Um, so, yeah, I was able to do that. And actually, I probably would have finished earlier. Um, I actually had to rewrite portions of the book. And, and it just goes to, to show you how during that time period, it was a lot of emotions and it was a lot of emotions for me. And I want to say a few months after I started writing, I started reading what I wrote earlier and my tone was harsh, right? My tone was like kind of antagonistic at times. And by that time, my writing style had gotten better and my voice sounded like me. I'm a very calm, rational, well-mannered person. And I, I realized I didn't want that to be my voice. I didn't want it to be antagonistic. I didn't want that. So I had to go back and, and rewrite you know, the points that I was making, but write it in my style and my voice. So that actually added to the length of time 
of writing, but it just goes to show you how much emotion um, you can get wrapped up when it comes to writing. And especially during that time period with the news and, 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 and all of these different narratives. Um, so it was, it was a weird time uh, to be honest with you when I think back, because there were, I would literally be driving to work and I would hear about a story that I was just so ridiculous and I had to write about it. <laughs> so I would add it into the book. So it, it just seemed like 20, uh, 2020 was like the year of race. And it was just story after story of race, this race, that write this, write that. And it, I would just use that as an example or use it as some sort of fuel to kind of get back at it and, and keep writing. Um, so, yeah. So let me ask you, you being who you are, would you consider yourself a black conservative or just um, otherwise? You know, I have no problem with the label of black conservative. I, it, If you ask me, I am socially conservative. Um, I am an independent politically. Um, you know, I'm pretty anti-establishment. Those those are my politics. They're with you, bro. <laughs> So, but yeah, I would say socially, I'm, I'm definitely conservative these days because that is how far our society has shifted left. Um, the things that were just common sense, like, hey, let's not mutilate children is now considered a conservative viewpoint. So um, I think, yeah, I'll, I'll take I'll take the conservative viewpoint at this point. Yeah, you know, I know a lot of people get caught up with labels and I mean, there's yeah. just so many different and I've constantly questioned myself, well, am I really conservative? Or am I really this? Or I'm just an American or am I a black American? You know, and it gets mm -hmm. so convoluted because, man, we just love attaching these labels to each other in this country. And when, once you get that label, it's like you can't get out from under it and you have to think this certain way or else you're mm -hmm. not part of the group. You know, and so for you being a black man speaking out against the way things are going in this country, especially at a time during the 2020 riots with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Were you at all hesitant going down this road? Because it is a lonely road to go down. Because I've been going down that road for years. And I remember when I first started speaking up and speaking out and how Black people pushed back against me, I was just like, oh, wow. And so did you have any hesitations or fears going down that road? So the, the good thing is I didn't have a, a public presence. So I was basically able to write um alone and i was able to just kind of mentally prepare myself that yeah this may happen but to be honest with you uh as i put it i've been blacking wrong almost my entire life you say so, black and wrong yeah black and wrong that's my that's the phrase that i use <laughs> you know where people say you're not, you're not being black uh correctly you know you're black oh, and wrong. Yeah. um so i you know i've been pretty much um you know i've i've heard the you're not black enough. Uh, you're the you're the white black. I, I've heard all this nonsense most of my life for arbitrary, stupid reasons. I lived in uh, a variety of states and a variety of areas, and at some point, you just stop caring, right? Yeah. So, I've kind of had that attitude. Like when pe if people want to say that you're a coon and Uncle Tom, I just laugh. Like it doesn't bother me. Um, Especially when it comes from white people these days, white progressives. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that now really makes me laugh. Um, so, yeah, it's it's um, I know it's a lonely road, but here's the thing. They just want you to think it's lonely. And, and that's the one thing that I discovered is once I started speaking out, 
I realized how many people felt the same way I did. It's just that their voices aren't being heard. Their voices aren't being elevated. They're being ignored. So it, it's been a it's been a weird transition for me because now what I'm trying to do is elevate other people's voices as well, whether they are black conservatives or just like maybe not liberals, maybe they're just somewhere all over the place. Maybe they just want to be able to express themselves, but it doesn't fit into a particular narrative. I want to be able to help them to to say like be you know I don't want to say be brave because I think that's overdone, but just like just say something. Like I think people are are far they're they're far more scared of the possibility of something negative happening, but they they don't look at the positives that can come from it. You know the positives for me far outweigh the negatives that have come. My hate mail is minuscule to all the people who've contacted me and said, thank you. I appreciate it. Your book helped me. Um, you know, thank you for this article and just having conversations about it. I thought I was the only one. And, and so stuff like that means a lot to me because I was that person, right, who <clears throat> thought I was alone in this feeling. I literally thought I was alone in this because I didn't know anybody else. <laughs> yeah. Or at least... Anybody who was vocalizing it with it, but then I realized, yeah, there's a there's a lot of people out there. There's a lot of people who feel the same way we do, who are just scared to actually say it. So it's been it's been definitely an interesting journey. Uh, but I I would advocate for people to to not feel like you're actually alone. There's a lot of people that think the same way we do. It is. So is that what kind of led you to start wrongspeak.net? So I started wrongspeak. Um midway of writing the book. So the book was focused on race, but there are things that might happen and I kind of wanted to write about it. So Wrong Speak initially started off with me just like uh, BSing a little bit, just kind of like venting, I guess. But then uh, actually there was a gap in time where I stopped writing for Wrong Speak and solely focused on, on, on the book. Um, once the book was published, then I put a lot more energy into wrong speak, but then I realized that I wanted wrong speak to be bigger than me. I wanted it to be for other people. I wanted it to be a platform to elevate other voices. So to fast forward to today, um, actually we had just moved our blogging platform over to Substack. Um, so now people can subscribe uh, to the blog through Substack. They can uh, pay for extra content and stuff like that. Um, but I have an editor, I have three writers that I pay. Um, and at this point, I'm no longer contributing to Wrong Speak. Wrong Speak is no longer for me. Now I have my own thing. I actually have, I just started my own Substack, right? So it's kind of, I'm carrying it over with my, um, with the blessing of getting a bigger platform. I'm trying to elevate those other people I'm trying to encourage them to write for wrong speak, to use their voice, and then using my platform to elevate those articles that they write, those personal experiences. Um, you know, these are these are just regular people, amateur writers, but you know, some of them can can really write. The the people, um, you know, the writers that I have that write for me frequently are all different, and they have different stories and different situations. Some of them have been through abuse. Some of them are, um, 
you know, I, I, my my editor is a, is a woman. One of the other writers is a woman. I two, the two other writers are men, right? So we're just all over the place, and to me, it's it's about the quality of work. It's about elevating their voices and getting them to feel comfortable enough to write. And on top of that, now creating a financial incentive for them to keep doing what they're doing. Um, so wrong speak for the most part has been become a passion project. It's been financially a net loss for me. I don't, I didn't really make any money from it. Maybe um, financially speaking, if people want to pay for content, that'll help to pay for the writers and things of that nature. But none of what I'm trying to do is, is about making money. It's been about the purpose. I've literally been taking book sales and paying people for wrong speak. So um, I'm right now I'm, I'm much more purpose driven and I believe in what I'm preaching. And oh, I absolutely believe it that you're that you believe in what you're preaching. And I'm I'm picking it up with you and I'm I'm going along the road with you, brother. That's the yeah. thing about this space and uh social media. Every nook and cranny is almost taken up by somebody. So when you talk like you and I are talking, people automatically think to all automatically Brandon Tatum, you know, then <laughs> like then you know, then they go Candace Owens, and there's just so many. There's so much more available to people now than when I started on my journey when I was 28 and I really started questioning stuff and feeling like, I guess I'm alone out here in this world, man. And as being black and having these views and not hating America, but, mm -hmm. you know, it, it seemed, seemed like a really lonely road. But now everywhere I turn, there's somebody popping up here that's black conservative there and there and there. A lot more people are speaking out and it's good and it's a good feeling. But at the same time, I'm also cautious because I also believe that there are a lot of people that are hopping on this train and see it as a, you know, a money train and grifting, you know, and just seeing yeah. it as an opportunity to make money because, you know, we'll see white people like, Oh, well, have you heard this guy that what he said about the black community? Like, well, yes, but that guy doesn't speak for everybody. You know, everybody right. has to have their own voice and their own, you know, their own opinion. So with you and with the, with this uh, discovery, when did this discovery happen for you? Cause I'm only in the first few pages of your book when, you were a young man growing up. You were homeless. You and your, your mom got put out the apartment and crying and your father mm -hmm. was just not there. What was the journey like for you growing up as a young black man? I believe it was in the Northeast in Jersey, right? To where you, how, how did you become you through all of this? Was it somebody in particular or just your life all culminating at one point and you just realizing all this yourself? Do you mean uh, from a political standpoint? Yeah, yeah, political standpoint and just how you see yourself okay. as a black man. So, um, like you said, you know, I grew up in a single parent home. Uh, a quick backstory, you know, we were homeless a couple times uh, when I was a kid. I was homeless for a, period, a short period of time as an adult. Um, you know, we lived in four states before I was 18. Uh I moved to Tennessee as an adult. So I've lived in five states. I've lived in a bunch of different areas. Um, and I guess the majority of my life, I've kind of been alone. Uh, a lot of people, they they live in the same general area. Maybe they have childhood friends. My oldest friend is from high school. And so I, I've kind of had an alone life, you know, being the new kid, moving around a lot. Um, even within, you know, the state of New Jersey, which is where, you know, I claim to be from New Jersey because I've lived here the longest. But even within New Jersey, <clears throat> I moved around a lot. Um, you know, and, and same thing in other states in New York, we moved around a bit. Um, 
so my my life has kind of been alone at the same time it it allowed for me to kind of think for myself a little bit you know the not being black enough and stuff like that um i face more so when i moved to new jersey because at that point i was in a more racially diverse uh community how old, how old were you at that time i was in eighth grade so what was that uh was it like 12 or something like that yeah um so that was a different thing for me because I literally moved from an area where I was one of four black kids in the entire school. Right. And the expectation for me to behave a particular way, address a particular way, uh, you know, it was definitely there. And I tried for a little bit and I, and I said, this, it doesn't feel right to me. And so I just stopped trying. Um, and I just started hanging out with people that I wanted to hang out with and, and be around. Um, and I, I just didn't care so much about fitting into any particular group. Um, and, and yeah, I would say for the most part, I kept thinking for myself, especially as I gotten older, I've gotten older, I started thinking more for myself and, and how I see myself and how I feel about certain things. Um, I would say, you know, it, the interesting thing is as much as I say, I'm, I'm a think for myself and I'm, I'm being critically, uh, I'm thinking critically about all different types of things. I'm like, I, generally speaking, I question everything, right? But my blind spot was politically. Politically speaking, when I was in my mid twenties, when I finally wanted to get into, into politics and I asked uh, my ex-girlfriend who was black, you know, tell me about politics. Cause I'm interested in getting into it. She said, uh, the Republicans are racist and Democrats are for black people. That was that was how my political journey started. And so I, you know, I decipher information as I understand it. So from that point, I watched MSNBC a lot, CNN. I took in all of this information and deciphered my opinion based off of that. It wasn't until later that I realized I had a whole other side that I just completely ignored or that information about that side was being filtered through the left, right? So I was never getting, like for one, you know, living in the Northeast, there's not a whole lot of out conservatives, at least where I was living at. So I never really had a chance to ask them questions or sit down and talk to them or even by accident. Um, so I, I really didn't know any conservatives. I really didn't know really any Republicans to, to understand where they come from. My viewpoint on conservatives or Republicans came from basically the media um, and the mainstream media. And so I, I would think that that was my major blind spot. Um, and not to go too long, but. Oh, you're fine. Uh, <laughs> you're fine. Go, uh, we in it. <laughs> Let's do it. So I the biggest credit that I give for my political shift actually came when I was traveling. Um, I was traveling abroad. Uh, I had been bouncing back and forth between Europe. Um, I've been to nine, nine countries, 10 countries throughout Europe. Um, and some of them on repeat and just, just, uh, meeting different people and making friends out there. Um, and I was in Madrid. I went to this pub, uh, to watch a game. The game was over. And I always, I always say like God works in mysterious ways because, the game was over and all of a sudden it goes from sunny out to torrential downpour. And I'm like, well, I guess I can't leave. 
because I don't have anything. So I watched another game and I sat next to this couple. It was an English guy. Uh, he was from Manchester and his, his girl's from Spain. And he had been living in Spain uh, for a number of years. Um, and we just headed off. We just kept talking. I came back to the States and we were talking every other day about football and all types of stuff. And I had nothing but good faith in him. And then he one day told me that he was for Brexit, uh, yeah, Brexit, um, where, you know, with England leaving the European Union. And I said, that's interesting because I thought Brexit was for these racist white people, right, who don't like foreigners and stuff. <laughs> so I asked him, well, why are you for Brexit? And he said verbatim, the United States would never allow an outside governing body to tell it what to do. I'm like, that makes a whole lot of fucking sense. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's a good point. And so from there, we would have conversations. And then he's actually the one who told me about Thomas Sowell. Mm, there it is. And and then I started going down the Thomas Sowell route and, and listening to him, Milton Friedman, uh, Walter Williams, all these different, all these different thinkers, black thinkers. And around that time, I was getting more into podcasts and listening to Joe Rogan. And one person that really messed me up actually was a libertarian, Peter Schiff. Peter Schiff said some stuff that I had never heard anybody say. And he had me messed up for a couple of days, just really thinking about all the things that he was talking about, um, the, the how government works, the usage of government, um, financially speaking. And I was like, man, this is messing me up. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, because everything he said makes sense, and I agree with it, but I'm supposed to be, you know, liberal. I'm supposed to be a Democrat. Be, yeah. So, <laughs> so I would say those are like the big things. It, everything kind of happened in stages for me, um, but those are like the big moments that really shook me and that stick with me to this day, um, and that kind of led me down this this journey. And this is well before I I started writing the book, so. Yeah, I'm about to say, man, because Brexit or Brexit, man, that's recent. So you're recently getting onto this journey and still yeah. kind of learning, growing, and developing, man. For me, it was like, my God, 2000, I guess 12, 13, when I really kind of started coming to my own. I don't know if you ever ever heard of this guy. His name is Mason Weaver. Man, Mason no, Weaver, man. man, Mason Weaver is the guy that kind of made me realize that I was not alone as a black conservative. He's an older black guy. He used to have a radio show in the 70s or excuse me in the 90s but in the 70s he was a black extremist like a big time black extremist spoke swahili went to uh ucla man and dude he was all the way out there and he hated white people because when he was in the navy in the 60s and was in vietnam he had one of his white shipmates like push all these heavy metal pipes onto him and broke his legs and almost killed him and mm. he said from there he would never ever ever trust white people again and he just went down this path of hate but lo and behold, he just had this incident in this moment where he just came to realize everything he thought and believed was wrong. You know, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And then after that, he just started studying more and more and more. And next thing you know, this man is all in on the right as a conservative. And my buddy, Jamarcus from high school, he was, he was in the Marine Corps. He started posting this guy uh, when BLM kind of started talking about BLM, Black Lives Matter. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh, oh. This black dude saying this? I was like, who is this? And, <laughs> man, I just started watching his video channel and I started reading some of his books. 
made like the truth between the lies and another one of them was a uh, 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 don't be afraid to leave the plantation and it just really took me and like you I was on my own journey of discovery because I had to learn to learn to think for myself because growing up you know how it is you're always taught what to think and what to believe and honestly mm -hmm. in my household we never really discussed politics everything was centered around Jesus and but we never discussed politics so I didn't know what my mom and dad were politically it wasn't until mm -hmm. I was a little older and I was in college and I started taking black history classes I was going down. I went down the the left path real hard, real hard. I was even part of Spike Lee's uh, uh, 40 Acres and a Mule film family when I did a movie mm -hmm. with them in Europe in uh, 2007. But it was after I lost everything and I was kind of sitting there like, who am I? What am I? And I don't know. I just started reading more. And that's when I really started discovering like, oh, the Democrats aren't the party that freed us from slavery. That was actually the Republicans. And, you know, you know what they what's the old saying? If you want to hide anything from a Negro put it in a book and I've never <laughs> old saying. And I was like, you know what? I've never been a big reader, but I just started reading more and more and more about Frederick Douglass and all these guys. And I was like, I've been lied to all this time, you know, or not even lied to. It's just, people are telling you what they know because of what they heard. And just like you, you said, you have to study for yourself. That is why I will never be part of a group like the Jonestown temple where the, the pastor took everybody to Columbia, because you can't just sit here and say, Hey, the Lord told me to tell you, Give me your wife and all your money. We're going to move to the jungle and I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to have wife uh, babies with your wife. And that's mm -hmm. because people do not know how to think for themselves. They just hear it and they take it at face value, especially in today's generation with memes. Like nobody does their own research. And that's the scariest thing that people are just being led to the slaughter because people are too lazy to do their own research. And I refuse to be a part of that. And I refuse to let right. my kids be a part of that. But let me ask you with, you, your mom raising you as a single mom, does she have any influence or input on this at all or family members? On, uh, on my politics or, or? Your politics and just how you grew up and just how, as a black man. Um, no, not so much. I would say socially. Um, and I, I, you know, it's, I talk about it a bit in the book and it's a little bit taboo to say, but you know, when you have young men who grow up with uh, women who are at the helm, who control the household, and there's no male figure for boys to mimic, because we're looking, you know, humans, especially children, all they do is mimic, and they're mm -hmm. learning from there. And so when you have no male figure to mimic, behaviorally, um, who are you going to mimic? Well, you're going to mimic the, the next authority figure within the household that's going to be the mom. So as I got older, I would say, especially within the last actually few years, I started really looking at my behavior and how I was, how I was seeing certain things. <clears throat> and I realized like, oh shit, um, you know, in some ways I was acting kind of feminine. In some ways I was being overly sensitive about certain things, right? And, it, you know, I had to correct myself. So even politically, as I was making a journey, I was making a personal journey. Um, you know, I used to have social anxiety, you know, because I didn't have any confidence, right? I was so worried about things that could happen and it never happened. Um, and it wasn't until I started focusing on myself and started traveling actually, and put myself in uncomfortable positions that now today, like I'm not worried about anything, right? Uh, you know, you can put me, <clears throat> into another country and I'll figure it out 
I've had situations happen. Uh, I, I've gotten stuck in France, actually, uh, missed my flight, and I had to figure it out, ask for help, and was able to make it back home, uh, $900 broker. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, it's stuff like that that I was able to I was able to make it through and figure it out. And so, you know, I kind of feel like without going through that personal development um, and and not being so sensitive and having more self-confidence, like you can't you can't do what I'm doing and be unsure about yourself Oh and, yes. and be worried about what people say and how people think. Like my attitude is literally, if you don't like it, that's your problem. That's not my problem. Yes, sir. Uh, you know, if if um, if a family member doesn't like what I have to say, I'm sorry, but this is how I feel. So we can not talk about it. I wouldn't even or, say I'm sorry. I wouldn't even yeah. say I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm like, nah, it's what it I'm is, saying, man. <laughs> theoretically, theoretically, I'm sorry you feel that way, but um, it, it, but you know what? I've been I've been very uh blessed because my family's very supportive they're they're like adam's an author let's support him and so i haven't had to have really that experience um even my favorite cousin you know he's a liberal guy he's like i, I don't really agree with you but i'm really happy for you cool i'm that's that's all take i want <laughs> i'll take it so it, it's it's stuff like that where um you know i i felt like Growing up in that single parent household hindered me in some ways. Um, and it's not necessarily my all my mom's fault. Obviously, my father is responsible for not being there as well. But, you know, my mom tried to do the best that she could. She had to work a lot. Um, and she had she had her own issue. She had her own thing going on as well, trying to raise not just me, but my sister as well. So, you know, and it was a chaotic at times environment as far as no stability. You know, so, you know, there are a lot of different things that I carried over from my childhood into my adulthood, and I had to basically figure it out from there. Um, but I would say the, the biggest transformation for me happened, I want to say, within the past three to five years, um, where I was able to grab a hold of myself and make a huge change. I want to say within the past five years, when I really started traveling, really started to focus on myself have more confidence and, and not be so, uh, you know, get rid of my depression. Like I, I'm, it's rare for me to get depressed because whatever's going on, I'll, I'll make it through it and I'll figure it out and I'll keep moving forward. So it's all these different things that I started, um, adapting into my life that I didn't necessarily grow up feeling. Um, uh, one other thing, taking hundred percent ownership, of whatever my actions are, you know, taking complete accountability for something and something goes wrong. I say, what could I have done better? <clears throat> right. Rather than what was me and, and trying to blame people and stuff like that. It's the white devil um, brother. <laughs> <laughs> every time that's the conclusion. Every time. Um, so yeah, all this, all these different things that I finally, like it took me a long time to figure that out, but I figured it out and you know, my life uh, trajectory has has gone up from there. Um, you know, I got married. We just celebrated our, our one year. Uh, oh, congratulations, man. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And you have so a son all too, these right? Things. Yeah, yeah. My son is, uh, he'll be 17 in a couple oh, of weeks. That's a grown man. Yeah. 
Yeah, I know. He's taller <laughs> than me. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, and that that's the other aspect. Going through all of these issues and all these things while I'm trying to raise my son, right? Um, not knowing what it means to be a man, what a man looks like, and, and how am I supposed to teach my son this? And basically just figuring out how to be a father um, with my son and learning from mistakes. Um, you know, so I, I remember right after my son was born, just telling myself, uh, I just don't want to be my father, right? I want my son to know that I care and he can come to me anytime. My son knows he can text me, call me anytime he wants. He can tell me anything. My role is to basically not to be the judgmental father, for him to feel comfortable comfortable enough telling me what he he should tell me and not to hide things from me and be real with me so we could work through it. So, you know, to this day, the only time I've ever been mad and I was infuriated with him was when he held something from me that he didn't need to. He could have come to me. Um, so I'm, I'm always trying to be supportive of him and what he's trying to do. Uh, we just switched to homeschooling, so we're trying to figure that out. Um, so, oh, it, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, the good thing is that he's a junior, so it's it's not as heavily involved, that, you know, if he was like in fifth grade or something like that. But, um, you know, yeah, my, my son is, has been a, a huge influence for me to get better. Um, better as a man and, and better as a father. Um, and he's he's a great kid. Um, you know, parents love him. He doesn't give me any real issues at all. Um, and, you know, he wants to be responsible and he's working and he, he wants to actually go to Japan after high school. So all these different things he wants to do. Um, and I'm, I'm really proud of him. And that's awesome, man. And, you know, I haven't talked to my father in a long time because when you read my book, you'll see the incident that happened with my mother and my father with the suicide of my mom because of how he treated her and the mm -hmm. domestic abuse. You know, it's, you learn a lot of what not to do from the, from the right people. And I'm the same, I'm in the same boat as you with my children. I'm trying to be open a lot more and not just, you know, throw the fist down and you know, rule with an iron fist because that is what so many parents do. And yeah. you learn, I mean, that's how I was raised. My parents are black parents from Mississippi in the South, man, born in 1960. You know, it's <laughs> just, it's very, very, very religious and very, very, very strict. You know, we are a strict household, but we're not that strict to where my kids feel like they can't come and talk to us because, man, they're going to make mistakes. But the good thing is you, I, with your father, and I, just from reading what I read so far, no, you had a lot of resentment towards your father and rightfully so, you know, he had another family, but he just kind of cast you all to the side. And then when he ended up dying, I, I just read that where you just kind of didn't really feel anything because you didn't know this guy, but I'm glad that you had that experience because that has now made you a better father clearly because without that, that experience, your son probably be getting the same experience that you got just, you know, and that, and the unfortunate part is, man, that is the story of the black community. And it's it repeated every day. I've been a black uh, cop in the, black neighborhood most of my career and man mm -hmm. it's every day you see so many fatherless children and that is the biggest plague plaguing the nation i don't care what anybody says the biggest problem we have in america right now is the american family and the breakdown of that unit the yeah. i heard i think i heard dan holloway say that the 
the family is the smallest form of government. And if it's broken at that small level, it's going to be broken, you know, throughout the entire structure. And that's what we're seeing now. So how do we go about changing black culture to where we cherish those things? Because we used to cherish those things back during mm-hmm. the like slavery times and, and after in the Jim Crow South, black families were so much more intact, you know, but then the government comes in and makes it and incentivizes black men to not be in the home. How do you think, how do you think that we reverse that to get back to where we were? Because we are clear, we are lost culture right now. We really are. And I hate it because we just accept all this filth and garbage that gets put out as, oh, this is just who we are, man. Don't even question it, bro. Like, no, that's not who we are. That's never been who we are. But for some other reason, we just blindly accept it. How how do we fix it? Um, I believe the only way to fix it is within a generation or two. Um, because the real solution is proper family planning and much like how you said you know i learned from my father's mistakes i think that the fact that we're having this conversation and i've seen other people have this conversation um and and whether he's a controversial figure when he was alive kevin samuels was having this conversation and i think that's a huge reason why people didn't like what he had to say because he was right about what he was saying. He was right about how the family structure is dysfunctional, right? And we need to have proper family planning and not think of our family as being something that we can easily toss to the side. Um, Or, you know, I can do it all by myself. Um, What we have today in many ways is a prevalence of what I call the matriarchy, right? The matriarchy is is basically a, the feminist household, whether they realize it or not. Uh, and in many ways, it's it's a feminist, it's a prevalence of the feminist mentality that exists within the black community. Um, we just don't call it that. We call it independent women. We call it strong black girl magic. All these other black girl magic. We call all of these all these different things that basically uplifts them and puts them um, as the hierarchy, as being the hierarchy. And so no matter what they do, it's okay, which is why openly criticizing even a singular black woman because of her actions and trying to hold her accountable can be seen as you attacking black women as a whole it could be seen as you being misogynistic and all of these different things. When if a black man was to do the same thing, you would still criticize them for doing something wrong, right? The the aspect of accountability is something that is extremely important in every society, right? Because if no one's accountable, then we then what's the point of all this? Exactly. You know, our society our society is going to go downhill. The fact that it's taboo to say hey, maybe you shouldn't have a bunch of baby fathers, right? Oh, I take care of mine, but that's taking care of yours is not the, that's like, that's not optimal. Um, You know, actually, funny enough, I have a huge problem with the whole Nick Cannon situation. Nick Cannon can do whatever dysfunctional nonsense that he wants to do. But my issue is when people say, well, go ahead, he's rich anyways, because they've equated men as just being financial earners, and they don't see any other purpose for us to exist with their family. So if he wants to have 
five baby mamas and eight kids or whatever the number is, as long as he's able to shell out cash, he's being a, an appropriate father. And, and, and that is the problem because even the matriarchy mentality has made it into men thinking that all I am here for is to procreate and dish out money if I got enough of it, right? <laughs> and then I'm quote unquote taking care of mine. When fatherhood is about being there for your children, you can't be there for your children when you have five households and they likely live in different areas of the country. Mm. I don't know enough about their situation, but I would almost guarantee they don't live around the corner from each other. You cannot be in five or multiple places at one time. You cannot show the same level of interest in all five of your children in different households or all eight, eight or nine, whatever the number it is now. Um, households with all the children, they are essentially going to have a, a financial um He's basically a wealthy, he's creating wealthy bastard children. I think that's the best way of kind of putting yeah, it. Yeah, that, that's a perfect way of putting it. And and that that's a shame. And, you know, he, he can live whatever way he wants, but it's when people congratulate him. It's when people say, yeah, well, that's how he do or make excuses. Yeah, he has a lot of kids, but he's rich. He could do it. If he had no money, you would call him a pooky and you'd call him a loser and that he needs <laughs> to keep his dick in his pants. Right. Yep. But because he has money, it's okay. That's, that, then it's okay. So it that's that tells me that our viewpoint on men and fathers is so low that we've essentialized their existence as being uh, a cash cow just to throw money at children, to buy them some things or to to help provide a home. But that's it, right? And we provide far more, far more than that. And and I think that that's at the root of a lot of our society's problems and the Black America's problems. But it's an American issue at this point. It really um, is of how yeah. how we see men and how we how we view them and how we see fathers uh, within our society. And that is why, if, if so, if people follow me on Twitter, that's why I frequently talk about this stuff. This is why I talk about my experience not having my father as a kid because not a lot of people are willing to do that you know even talking about fatherlessness comes off as an attack on women right so we can't even talk about fatherlessness in, in a, an appropriate manner because someone may take it as you're attacking single mothers right when the reality is when i talk about fatherlessness i'm saying we need to hold both the women accountable and the men right the men who stick it in and dip they need to be held accountable and the women who choose men who weren't going to stay around anyways who choose to procreate with men they're not married to right yeah there should be some accountability that's not the best decision right and in a time where we have birth control and even though i don't agree with it we have abortion right so when women have children they choose to have children and they're choosing to have children in undesirable circumstances outside of marriage, that is a problem. So to kind of go back, how do we fix things? The failures of our parents and grandparents are going to be the examples for children to look at. They're gonna see the dysfunction and hopefully with uh, people like myself, you, and, and others who are saying, you see that screw up, don't do that. You remember how that felt? 
don't be like that. And I think that's going to start to stem the tide um, for a lot of people to realize like, I don't want that. Or maybe this isn't the best idea. I've met so many women who used to be feminists who are like, yeah, when I thought like that, my life was terrible. <laughs> you know, always on and the offense, like, always on the defensive. Right. Or they were told things. It, it's so funny when um, you're, you're familiar with the term like red pill, right? Oh, yeah. Red pill, blue pill. Yeah. Black pill. Yeah. 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 So it's funny because I, I know women who who were red pilled as far as what men actually look for, what things that they are like turned off by. And they're like, that's so crazy that men actually don't like that because I've been told that men do like this. And I've been doing this for years. I'm like, yeah, that's not going to work. Right. And it's just they're fed. So many women are fed failure. And and it's and it's such a sad thing to watch. You know, I you know, I have the, the uh, part of my book about feminism where I'm talking about the fat acceptance movement. Right. Who does that really affect? That affects black women. Black women are the the um, most obese or overweight population within our country, right? Man, I, I see. I'm I'm just getting on chapter two, bro, and I'm I'm just getting into, <laughs> I'm just getting into the throes of that. And I'm just, just like, man, it. yeah. But that, right, that's little, and that's literally black culture, man. Like, I'm a type two diabetic. Why? Because right. I wasn't taught properly how to eat when I was younger. Just kind of eat whatever, man, and. My grandparents had diabetes and their grandparents had diabetes. And now I got it myself and I'm working against <laughs> years of bad information to reverse it, you know? Right. And then people say, do your thing. You're big and beautiful. It's okay. You don't need to change, right? You're preaching failure. And even more so, you're preaching an early death for a lot of Black women. That's not fair to me. That's not fair that that is pervasive within the culture. And that that's combined with the we're not allowed to hold them accountable. So telling someone that they're too overweight, that they're sick, would be holding them accountable. We're not allowed to do that. And they're especially not allowed to do that if they're black women, especially in a public forum. So it, we have all of these things that the matriarchy protects. Right. The matriarchy says you're not allowed to hold them accountable. You're not allowed to criticize. And if you do, we will come after you. We will cancel you and destroy everything you have built. <laughs> right. Or at least attempt to or at least yeah. malign you. Um, so it's it's that part of our culture that the feminist aspect of of black culture is so strong and it's so pervasive that yet people overlook it. And I, I wanted to be able to write about how impactful that is because that alters the family outlook that alters how we approach family planning and if family is the biggest problem well if one side of the of the family aspect is the one who chooses the partner right because women choose who they appropriate with you know they can have 100 guys who want them but they choose one of the guys and and they're choosing this way and they view family in such a negative way they view marriage negatively um, you know, black females are the least, uh, the, was it the lowest, the least married population? I believe the least married demographic. I believe that. You know, so like you, you have all of these different things that tells you that there's an issue when it comes to the family and we should be able to talk about it. And that's, that's what drives me crazy is the fact that we're not just, we protect 
our bad behaviors. And because of that, we just will, we will never grow as a people or as a community just because we have all these, you know, negative negatives just constantly being tossed at us, man. And nobody wants to say anything about it. And that's been my biggest thing. What made me start to speak up was like being a black police officer in a black neighborhood. I mean, just the other day, we had a young girl that got blasted in a car and a guy killed at a club in a related incident. And, you know, I hear the chance of Black Lives Matter. And I'm like, where are the protests? Where are the crowds for these actual black lives lost? And that these selective black lives that were lost that weren't actually good people because mm-hmm. that, you know, George Floyd was not a good man. You know, he was a flawed person. He had a lot of issues, man. But I don't like why we in our in black culture today, we turn our criminals into martyrs and we just make and turn them into gods. And it and I see it every day in the neighborhoods that I work and have worked in. And I'm just like, this man has plagued this neighborhood and these and the people here. But some reason y'all want to celebrate him. But I also know that that's a media narrative that is being spun. And right. do you feel like the black community is too far gone? Because man, I ain't gonna lie. Sometimes I feel like we are too far gone just because I see the chaos and turmoil every day where I work. I've seen so many dead black bodies, dead young black men. And now it's becoming a pandemic of dead young black women because women are getting more involved in the criminal game and criminal element, man. It's right. every day. And I try to be positive. Like, no, we can change this thing. It doesn't have to be like this. And, you know, when are we, you know, when are our people going to wake up? And it's just like, man, I, I guess as a cop and being dealing, dealing with, I, what, with, with what I have dealt with the last few years, it's hard to have a positive outlook. So what would you say to somebody like me that's a cop in a black neighborhood, you know, trying to make that difference and trying to be encouraged? What could you say to me to help encourage me, brother? Because I need it, man, because <laughs> it, it looks grim every day I come to work. <laughs> so um, the solution comes from the next generation. So if there are any children that you can um, theoretically touch, as far as preaching to them and have them hear what you have to say, that's really where the solution is. Um, I I don't hold any real hope for, you know, obviously people change their minds. I've changed my mind, you change your mind, right? But we're the outliers. Most people, when they reach a certain age, they're pretty solid in, in how they see things, right? And so getting them to change their behavior from something they've done their entire lives is extremely unlikely. So yeah, you're gonna see a lot of the same thing, unfortunately, but the hope is that the next generation will will start to make a difference. And I think more people, whether they're, and, and that's the whole thing, the whole family thing doesn't have to be a conservative viewpoint. Like this, us talking about the importance of family and fathers within the homes wasn't really like a, a conservative viewpoint. It wasn't even a viewpoint. It was just like, well, duh, people know this. Yeah. We just did it. Um, and now, it, you know, it's been semi-politicized, but um, I think other people, it doesn't matter if they're Democrat, Republican, whatever, they can advocate for the importance of families. Like the numbers are there. Like like the proof is in the pudding. You got eyeballs. You can see. You can put a kid who has no father with a kid who has a healthy father. You can see the impact that they have. It doesn't even matter what they look like. And this has become an American problem. We have the highest single parenthood uh, rate in the world. 
So I, I think when people start to understand that, they start to ask themselves, well, why is that the case? Um, because we, it hasn't always been like this. But uh, as far as the positive is that you're you're likely policing an, an area that is lower on the economic scale. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So much... Much of the issue that we're seeing when we talk about, you know, black crime and, and criminality is happening in a lower socioeconomic area. And a lot of the reason why they're in a lower socioeconomic situation is because of single parenthood. Single parenthood renders okay. you poor most of the time, right? It's just like this perpetual cycle. Um, and then you have more children and you remain poor. Like it, so... But the, the good thing, if you want to take it outside of that community, because it is a poorer community, likeliness of a whole bunch of things changing while you're still a police officer, very slim. If you extrapolate it, we have a pretty decent sized middle class. Uh, I, I want to say it's it's more than half. I think it was like 60 percent of black Americans are middle class. Right. So that means that we're spread out throughout the country. We are doing relatively fine as a, uh, as far as like class goes. We're not all destitute, we're not all poor, and mm -hmm. we have an upper class, right? And and that's actually, that's one of the things that I like writing about. I like talking about the black elite because the black elite are no different than any other demographic of elite, right? No. They have the, all the same mentality. They think the same way. And then they use the very people that you police, they use them as political pawns, right? So. We have an elite, but we have a strong middle class. And I think that the the black middle class is continually overlooked because of the, when you talk about death, right? That's going to stick out. When you see high amounts of crime and high amounts of death happening in a, in a, a very specific demographic, those things are gonna overshadow the basically, I don't wanna say mediocre, but the, the mediocre middle class, you know, there's nothing, crazy about them. They're going to overshadow everything. But I think people need to realize we're not all poor. We're not all destitute. We're not mm. all, you know, uh, baby daddies and baby mamas all over the place. Right. That exists for sure. Right. That exists in particular areas, especially particular cities. But the reality is more than half of us are middle class and there is a black upper class um, and, and there are black millionaires and billionaires. Right. And those speaking of which millions millionaires and billionaires have huge amount of influence within our society right we just like to pretend that they don't but they do yeah they, they really do have a lot a whole lot of pull and a whole lot of power so with that yeah. man we're talking about the upper class and the elites i want to talk about uh representation how do you feel when it comes to people love to throw around the term representation i'm not being represented and we're seeing this currently this past week with the little mermaid and just mm -hmm. the last few years with people, you know, there's not enough black people in these leading roles. Me personally, I tell my wife, you know, my, me and my wife, we tell our daughter, you know, we don't really care what the color of somebody is. It's really about their character. And technically mm -hmm. I really don't think kids care what color the little mermaid is. The only reason kids care is because parents have taught them to care. And for, right. so for me, <laughs> you know, that's literally the only reason. I was watching a reaction video today. A little black girl was watching The Little Mermaid. Oh my gosh, she's black! And I'm like, you would have never cared before if your mama never pointed it out to you. You just want to be yeah. entertained, man. 
So when it comes to representation, man, I'm personally, I'm not big on representation because I feel like I don't need anyone to represent me. I represent me and nobody really speaks for me just because you're black and conservative does not mean that I need you to represent me. So, and that's been like the biggest push recently is just, we need more representation. How do you feel about the whole representation thing? Cause I feel like black people, we're always looking for a King of the Negroes, somebody to lead us <laughs> to the promised land, bro. You know, and it's just like, yo, yeah. bro, lead yourself. You don't need a Jesse Jackson. You don't need these other people to lead you lead yourself. <laughs> You know what? You should you should read my article where I kind of talk about where that came from, uh, this idea that there needs to be some sort of leadership um, and how that's kind of turned into today. But um, as far as representation goes, I can't tell you almost every other day I want to say I want to like I want to go on Twitter and be like black people are 13 percent of the population. Like I, I actually wrote an article highlighting highlighting something similar for a different reason. Black people are 13% of the population, right? We, uh, 60% of black Americans live in 10 states. So that means that we live in very specific areas. You could probably name those states by the cities. We live in highly populated areas or surrounding those areas. So we, we live in, in, in very specific demographics and very specific um, uh, I'm sorry, not demographic, but very specific geographic of the United States, right? So that means that there's a lot of areas that we do not live in, right? We have sprinkles of Black people who just live in random areas throughout the country, but the vast majority of us live in 10 states, which basically means we live in 10 cities within those states. So when people want representation, would we expect... Uh, a 20% population within a business, within let's say a corporation that was in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. No, <laughs> yeah. we wouldn't. Yeah. They're just not there. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, obviously, we cannot have uh, even a even a 13% population expectation within this particular scenario. So. It's like the whole representation thing is so fluid as far as how many black people do you expect? We are 13% of the population. So when they say uh, only five black people were nominated for X, Y, and Z award, I'm like, we're 13% of the population. How many black people do you think are into acting? How many black people do you think are acting that are good enough to get an award. When you have a higher population, you have a higher uh, probability of good people being at whatever field that they're in. Like, you, there's so many things about society that you cannot control for that they believe that you can basically artificially prop up and somehow make it good and somehow make it better. They also like to pretend that, for one, like Black people never had TV shows, were in movies, Thank you. were highly influential. I was talking to it's so funny. I was talking to uh, uh, a British guy um, who's like his family is he's black. His family's from Jamaica and stuff like that. And he says it's so funny listening to black Americans talk about like calling themselves African-American, like and how they, they kind of disassociate themselves. He's like, I've always looked at like when I think of Americans, I think of like Michael Jackson. I think of Michael Jordan. Like I think I don't think 
well, these are particular types of Americans, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And, and, and it's it's just so interesting how how we view how we view our society and and what's there. But like black Americans have been extremely influential in all different aspects of culture, entertainment, um, uh, even down to uh, education, like it, all over the place. The idea that there's just not enough. Well, for someone to say there's not enough, you have to tell me how much there needs to be. And they don't ever do that. They just make a complaint. When the Oscar's so white. Oh, God, uh, yeah, yeah, I remember. <laughs> right. That is the black elite whining, right? And so now we're supposed to cry for the black elite because there's not enough of them getting an award for whatever reason, right? And you know what? There may actually be some sort of issue within liberal Hollywood. Let's just say that, that there's a little bit of bias in liberal Hollywood. Create your own shit. Thank you, brother. That has been my biggest complaint right now with the whole Little Mermaid thing. I am tired of Hollywood remaking stuff and putting black people in it like the Black Wonder years. I'm like, are you telling us that we're not good <laughs> enough to have our own stuff that we have to be remade from a white show into a black show? I'm like, do we not have enough creativity to start something new and different? Like, you can have a Black Mermaid, but have it be different. Like, don't just give us this old recycled stuff and just tell us, oh, this is what it is now. Accept it. Like, and I just feel like it sells Black people so low, man. It really does. Like, we're we're creative, bro. Like, the Black Panther. There's so many other avenues and ways that they could go with this stuff. But I, like you said, it's the elite telling us what they want us to see. Because honestly, before this happened, I never heard one black person complain about Ariel being white. Not one. Whoever cared. And then all of a sudden I get online. It's just, oh, my God, there's a black little mermaid. You know, and it's just like and then all of a sudden black girls are just influenced. Like, oh, my God, she looks like me. And I'm like, you never cared before. <laughs> you know, it's, just, it's wild and bizarre, man. And it drives it's, me crazy. <laughs> it's so far. It's it's like cultural hand me downs. Exactly. Like, Yes. Oh yeah, we'll give him this one. Yeah, just just put another. And and what's funny is I I knew uh, I was friends with an actress who would tell me how casting directors would say, "Well, you're a person of color, right?" They would do the that whole thing. They know exactly what they're doing. Um, it reminds me, I, I got into this discussion with uh, we'll, we'll call him left wing uh, friends. I don't know where we stand at this point, but like he's a left wing <laughs> friend. And, and I told him that I, I was saying to him, I was like, have you noticed um, like half our commercials feature black people? And so later on, we had another conversation and he said, I remember when you said that and I, I told people that you said it and I'm, I'm laughing, but he's laughing because he thinks I'm complaining that half of the uh, people who are showing up are black. And I said, no, like, you think I'm mad because black people are in television? Like, that's ridiculous. What I'm laughing at and what I'm highlighting is that's not by accident. That's on purpose. Like, black people, like, I've been watching television my entire life, right? Black people have always been in commercials. But now what they're doing is this. Uh, a black husband, a white uh, wife, and an Asian kid. Like they're doing, they're <laughs> filling in quotas. Like, you're, are yep. you not seeing what they're doing? Like that is not by accident. That it, none of this is by accident. When you talk about casting for movies, 
casting for anything within entertainment, they are specifically looking for a particular demographic, right? Years ago, they would say, we're looking for a tall, tall strong male. We're looking for a hot blonde. You know, they were, they're looking for a particular demographic. Now they're trying to do is fill in a quota. And now you have even the, the um, I think it's the Oscars saying that if this film did not have a certain percentage yeah. of like, oh, it's my not going to be nominated. But, but my, thing not is, be... my thing is, it doesn't even fit like because they're forcing it. I think it was the uh, Michael B. Jordan's movie. It was oh, I forgot what it was like. He was a Navy SEAL and they the, like the commander of the Navy SEALs was this skinny black ball head female. And I was like, this does not fit this movie whatsoever at all. <laughs> like, and I just it just I can only suspend my belief so much. And for me, I was right. like, that was too much. And it was a stretch. I'm like, this isn't real, bro. <laughs> like, there's yeah. not one single black. There's not even a female Navy SEAL, let alone a black female Navy SEAL. And it just like say it's just Hollywood trying so hard to pander for your money and your bucks, man. And I, I honestly, I really don't watch many movies now because of it. I mean, everything I watch has these uh, just little into windows in it. Just I think it was a Queen Latifah movie that's on Netflix and Ludacris is in there. As soon as he steps out the car, he's got the black power communist fist on his shirt. And I'm like, I ain't watching this shit, man. I'm, I cut it off, bro. Like. Hollywood has infiltrated just within the last two years. I mean, this whole movement, you know, the whole communist movement, it's just infiltrated everything. Football, video games. Every time I cut on a video game the last few years, it's like we stand with the movement and Black Lives Matter. And I'm just like, this whole country is just being taken and people are just, okay, this is acceptable. This is cool. This is what it is now, you know. And they create this false belief that, you know, black people are just being beat up and killed by the police every day. And just like you were mm -hmm. saying with the ratios, the biggest complaint we have with police officers, white police officers that work in a black neighborhood, you're stopping the only black people and beating up black people. Well, there's nobody else to stop here in this neighborhood. <laughs> you know, who else am I supposed to stop? And, you know, who else right. am I supposed to force the law on? But we don't think about that. We just look at everything from an emotional perspective, you know, with a, uh, you know, with politics attached to it, man. And that's why I, say, I, I try to be encouraging, but it's just, in order for me to be encouraged, I need to see people start to think more for themselves and ask more questions. You'd be like, why are they saying this? But uh, I don't know. It's just we just become so lazy as a society, man. It just we just going with the flow and the flow is taking us, you know, straight to to the bottom. man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> I think, you know, how we look back at like the black exploitation films, you know, like, oh, that was that era where they did this yeah. thing. I think we're going to look back. This is like the woke era of entertainment where they look back and just laugh at the ridiculousness <laughs> of some of so. these movies. They're like, could you believe they did this? I, I really do believe like this whole culture war thing, you know, wars eventually come to an end. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that there are signs that there's pushback. The fact that we're sitting here having a conversation, I wouldn't have said three years ago. But now we, we're here and we're now soldiers in the culture war discussing this and trying to push back in it and, and, and trying to say to people, which honestly I believe is the majority of people who already feel this way, that like this shit is weird. We don't agree with it. And we're speaking <laughs> up and saying something about it. So it's kind of like with Top Gun, man, bro. Top Gun was the highest, I think still is the grossing movie in the last few years. Because people are tired of all the woke crap, bro. It's like 
bro, I'm here to be entertained, not to have right. you push your propaganda message to me. And it was just a good movie. There were black people in the movie and they fit into the movie because there are yes. black fighter pilots. It was just like, it was just can... a <laughs> great movie. It was just an awesome movie. That's all it was. I... I'm like, and I felt like I was in the 90s sitting in there like, man, that was just a good old fashioned American movie. Nothing else right. to it. Right. That's the thing. You can have black people or any other demographic in there, but you can tell when it's forced. It's like when you it's like when you go on a date, right? You go on a date with a woman, you can tell when she's interested or when she's not. Like it's it's pretty obvious, even if she says, Yeah, I'm having a good time. No, you're not. Like I can tell you're not interested. You don't want to be here. She gets up, goes to the bathroom, and never comes back, you know. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and that's what we're going. being told. We're being told that, oh, um, this is all natural. And yeah, we have we focused on diversity. Yes, you're forcing it to happen and it doesn't look natural and it it sounds weird. And then on top of that, you add in propaganda to it, right? You should be able to watch a movie, a TV show and not suspect anything, right? And not feel like, oh, they're just doing this because of this. Like, I remember those days where I would hear like, oh, they, you know, they only did this because of whatever. And I'm like, ah, I think you're reaching here. Now, today, <laughs> oh, it's, it's they blatant. are. It's clearly, <laughs> it's obvious. <laughs> yeah, so. Man, so let me ask you, man. So we were talking earlier about uh, being bl uh, Black Americans. That is one thing I still struggle with in, I guess, identity-wise is how do I describe myself and view myself? So with my book, I Am Pitts, Memoirs of an American Patriot. I was like, should I put black American Patriot or should I leave it out? You know, because that's been one of those things. And I still struggle with it to where it's like, what am I? Am I really just an I, personally? I say I'm just an American. But then sometimes I'm like, well, I am an American, but I am black. But the biggest thing I tell people in my book is my skin color does not define me. My skin color mm -hmm. is just a physical characteristic to where if you say, hey, see that dark skin black over there, that's Dex. That's all it is. You know, it doesn't give me any value or take away from me or add to me. So how do you handle that? I just say black American. I just accept it, that that is the easiest. First off, I don't like African American. I don't like that at all. Yeah, me neither. Uh, I think it's never a, been there. Yeah. Been close. No. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, man, that was close. So I understand race exists and people understand race. And so I just go along with it. So that's why throughout the book, I say black American. Um, and sometimes I actually try to stay away from saying black community, but sometimes I slip into just saying black community because people understand it. But yeah, I, I have no problem with saying black American just so people understand what I'm talking about. But generally speaking for myself, it's like, I'm just right? Yeah, I'm I'm black. Okay. Like that's not out of the, the list of things that are really important about me, that's not at the top. Yeah. Right. You know, so you know, it's one of those things where I just accept I accept the label of, of black American. And that's usually what I refer to things. Uh that's what I use for the book. Even on the back of the book, I say black Americans. So I, I'm I'm fine with that. And there's another thing you put in the book I found real interesting. It's something I also struggle with. When you said in the book that when you refer to the Black community or we, you include yourself as part of we, the Black community. See, me, mm -hmm. I'm on the opposite end to where 
I talk about the black community and the only thing I have in common with the black community I'm around and work with is skin color. And so for me, mm -hmm. I look at community as some, like where I live now currently, I live in a very white, it's mostly white people where I'm at. There are black people over here. I got a couple neighbors up the street that are black, you know, but I see all of us as a community because we all live together in proximity. And also when I think about community, I'm a veteran and a police officer. That's also my community because we have a lot of the same shared values and a lot of the same shared experiences, you know, and I've realized that a lot of my experiences with other black people aren't the same, although we have some stuff that's in common. But if the only thing we have in common is skin color, I don't consider that being part of a community. So how how do you consider yourself part of the black community? It's it's tricky because, like you said, I do. I did have it in the book. Part of the reason why I say we is because I didn't want it to be like, y'all need to fix this problem, right? There you go, yeah. And, and, and so, yeah, I, I say we because, yeah, I need I needed to do my part. I'm still doing my part. And I feel like writing this book and, and trying to help people is, is me doing my part. And there are parts in the book where I talk about my faults and how I, I wasn't helping the image as far as, because whether we, we want to like it or not, we do have an ethnic image. And so yeah. I, I'm, you know, I needed to do my part with helping the ethnic image, helping the, just the, just the superficial of how people see us. Right. And pointing out the rot uh, that, that exists that messes it up. Cause I feel like this, if, if someone's walking down the street and someone sees a black person and their initial thought is potentially negative, then that's not beneficial for me, right? So helping helping to change the ethnic image, helping to, to change how people see us, all these different things is beneficial for everybody, but it's beneficial for me too. So why would I want people to see me in a negative light? Like, and, and so I understand that. If you're walking down the street, you see an Asian person, you're going to think something in particular, right? It's just your your gut reaction, depending on how they look, what they're doing, so on and so forth. Same thing for a Black person, woman, man, whatever. We have instincts and we have uh, initial reactions to certain things. So I just, I, I'm being selfish also by saying, yeah, we need to do better because y'all are messing this up for me too. When if someone sees me, I'm not doing anything wrong and they think I'm potentially doing something negative, um, that's not good either because that's our ethnic image. When they look at me and can assume that my mother uh, was not married and, and had me out of wedlock, <laughs> it's like, that's like, that's a problem. Even though they're right, like, that's a problem. <laughs> so I, I want to be like, let's, let's, you know, let's improve our ethnic image as well but i don't i didn't i didn't want the book to be like because we're always uh black conservatives or right-leaning black people are always accused of, of wagging their finger and saying you black people are doing something wrong and because they say oh you're doing that to appease white conservatives wow, or whatever yeah. so i ne i didn't want to do that i didn't want it to be like y'all are having this problem and i and disconnect myself from it i want to see like we all can do better. I could do better. We can all do better and, and all these different things. So 
yeah that's i within that context i accepted the the black community but other than that i try not to use it too much because i feel like it's it's overused it's used as like a group a group think like uh the yeah. black community needs to do x you know like yeah or yeah, I, so I, I try pers- yeah i hate when people say blacks <laughs> the blacks like I, I absolutely hate it or they the whites like god god like what is this like the 1800s man <laughs> you know, I, I absolutely i cannot stand that term but man uh was about to say um jesus man man with uh with this said man brother it has been an absolute honor and a privilege to have you on the iron pits podcast honestly i hope i can have you back on again at some time yeah or is a podcast possibly in the future for you um there may be some big things happening within the next couple months um maybe not podcasts but other big things uh, and i'll when it happens i'll make an announcement all right and also where can people get your book and where can people find you online yeah so definitely uh find the black victim the black victor i would say amazon is the the quickest the fastest way for most people um you can definitely read my writings on substack uh you can go to adambcoleman.substack.com uh, and definitely check out wrongspeak uh, substack. So that's wrongspeak.substack.com. Um, I'm definitely all over Twitter these days. So at wrong underscore speak. Um, and you can find me on other social media platforms as well. And Adam, I truly appreciate having you on, man. You go and enjoy your family, brother. Keep doing what you're doing. We need your voice out here. All right. So Thank keep you. pushing on forward, my man. I'll be talking to you in a little bit. All right. All right. All right, take care, man. You have a good one. You as well.